How often are our days defined by our demands? How often do those demands distract us from our eternal purposes? One day, the living millennial Messiah will return to this earth in power and glory. As a collective of flawed souls striving to make the most of our agency, we can rediscover the light of our eternal purpose as we build Zion through goodness and mercy. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I think the millennium will just be a time of like peace and happiness. The world would have been purified. Jesus Christ will be here and we'll be able to do those things to help God's children be able to live with Him forever. I personally believe that the millennium will be a moment of peace on, on this earth and a moment where, where we'll be able to reflect on the choices that we have made um, and grow closer to um, Jesus Christ. I anticipate it being happy. I know there will be a lot of reunions with family, and that will be exciting. Seeing our Savior again, that will be amazing. And, and especially having our Savior be our ruler. I think being with Him will just be so um, overwhelmingly um, beautiful. It will be a very loving experience. Ultimately, it'll be um, an experience where we will feel um, ultimately comfortable and um, really feel the Spirit at that time. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here today. The discussion topics for today come from our studies in Isaiah chapters 58 through 66. And the first topic we're going to talk about today is Christ will reign on the earth during the millennium. And the second topic is creating Zion, where mercy and goodness reign. And to help us with our discussion, we want to welcome back one of our scholars, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Oh, so good to be back. James is a historian, writer, and researcher for the Church History Department. And seated next to James is our special guest, Jared Ludlow. Jared, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Jared teaches ancient scripture at BYU and is the publications director at BYU's Religious Studies Center. So let's go ahead as we jump into this first topic, Christ will reign on the earth during the millennium. Uh, Jared, do you want to give us a little context with these chapters? Sure. I mean, we're coming to the end of the book of Isaiah. This is a time period when some of the Israelites had been very wicked, and the Assyrians had come in and had conquered the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah was under siege as well. And if they luckily survived, uh, but Isaiah's warnings are to them that, you know, see what happened to your brethren, this could happen to you. All right, thank you, Jared. Is there anything you want to add to that, James? These are the chapters where he says, I've trodden the winepress alone. Mm. And you get that red robe uh, imagery. So, so when we talk about Christ returning to the earth, a lot of how we imagine it comes from the message Isaiah gives us. Yeah, okay, I like that. Yeah, and I think when we think of the second coming, of course the millennial conditions sound great, and the peace and the beauty and the restoration. But to get to that point, there's gonna be some destruction and, and changes that can lead us, leave us with a little bit of fear. And I like how the Apostle Paul uh, described it as birth pangs. In other words, the, the pains that a mother feels right before and while delivering a baby. But soon thereafter, you have this child and there's this 
joy and euphoria that now a baby is born, but you have to go through the pain first to get this new heaven, new earth, these new changes, these new conditions. And it's that divine intervention that we can at least trust that Christ can be there and help us through that. Okay, and I'm glad you brought up this idea of Christ returning to the earth because I think that there's a lot of emotions and feelings that, that come with that thought. Uh, Jared, can we jump into Isaiah and look at some of those scriptures that talk about, you know, some of these, the, the, the positive, you know, the more happy and, and some of the scary things that come with uh, Christ's return? So where we probably want to start is, is first off, when we use the title Christ, we're talking about the anointed one, right? And what is he anointed to do is to fulfill certain missions and roles uh, as part of our Heavenly Father's plan. And I think particularly in Isaiah 61, uh, we see this spelled out. And why we know that this is such an important passage is because Jesus himself, during his mortal ministry at the beginning, uh, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth and went into the synagogue to meet with the people there. And they gave him the opportunity to read the scrolls and, and to, to share scripture. And this is the passage he chose to share is verses one and, and the beginning of verse two, where it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison in them that are bound. And then he continues in verse two, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But he paused there and he, he stopped, and that's where he proclaims, today is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, I am the fulfillment of this. I am the anointed one. Well, their first reaction is, how could he be the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for? And that continued to be a problem, not only, I mean, I think particularly for those in Nazareth, but others in the Galilee area, Jesus looked like a normal person. This is such a clear template for the work of the Messiah that, that you can read it right alongside Matthew chapter five, where he gives the Beatitudes mm. and line it up. He's here to preach good tidings to the meek, blessed are the meek. He's here to bind up the brokenhearted. And he says, blessed are they that mourn to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He says, blessed are the merciful. And so really, in, in very literal ways, this does give us the heart of Christ's ministry then, and then anticipates his return. It's, it's interesting where he stopped, yeah, right? Exactly, because the second part of verse two is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Sometimes we, we fear justice, but justice means that he is consistent, that he is somebody that we can depend on. Uh, and obviously he always wants to grant that mercy uh, to us. I think too, justice is really necessary to finish the work that he described in verse one, right? In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. We, Christ has to come in power for the meek to inherit the earth, which is what he does at the very end of verse two and into verse three, to comfort those that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. In other words, to give them that inheritance, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, 
that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So Christ is coming back to the vineyard in justice to clean it up mm -hmm. and then in mercy to nourish it and grow it. We are constantly faced with the justice side and the mercy side. And I think at times it can be a really scary thing if we're solely focused on, I did this, I'm gonna be punished, mm -hmm. justice has to be met. What are your thoughts? I think Isaiah is speaking to the nation, right? Okay. Here are God's people as a whole. And for my individual life, right? What those, those acts of repentance that are about a specific thing I did wrong, it's easier to be hopeful and get to the mercy side, right? When I think about us collectively as a society or as a world, sometimes I don't think we're terribly interested in repenting. Okay. And, um, and so that's when I start to feel more this sort of weight of the Lord's justice, this gulf between the world we have and the world we've been called toward. Okay. Does that make sense? And that can be really scary if we focus just on that part. Yeah. So besides individual conditions that will affect us during the millennium and, and these changes that Christ can bring to us, there's certainly the bigger picture with the world and, and society at large. And if we look, for example, at uh, chapter 65, verse 17, it, it promises, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. So there's that positive celebratory aspect of this that we should look forward and, and rejoice in the changes that are coming because it's going to be a lot better than it is now. And this is what we're trying to get to, um, the place where there's a new heaven and new earth and, and everyone can have this, this glory and rejoicing of the Lord poured out on them. Yeah. We had a question coming from one of our viewers that alludes to that, and I'd love to get some of your thoughts after we watch what they have to ask. Hi, I'm Brittany Richmond from Rapid City, South Dakota. And several times in these chapters that we just read, Isaiah mentions that we should rejoice in the second coming of the Savior. But at the same time, intermingled in those scriptures are some rather less than pleasant, maybe even a little bit scary signs of the second coming. So my question is, how do I teach my family to prepare themselves so that they truly can rejoice in the Savior's return rather than fear it? That's a good question. That's a great question. And I think there's a lot of answers, but one that's on my mind right now, let's read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse six. It says there, but we are all as an unclean thing and our righteousness are as filthy rags and we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, right? So we don't need to be afraid. This is all of us at some level. We can it's just know. Us for no sure. uncertainty. We're all in this, okay? Yep. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. And then verse 8, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. So, when God grinds us to dust, it's to make us clay. And I think 
this sounds really advanced, but if you teach your kids, it's okay when you screw up, right? It's okay to make mistakes and learn and have some things taken apart because you can build it back better with the Lord. Okay. You know, I, I think of that primary song, uh, the children's song, I wonder when he comes again. And, you know, sometimes I wonder when he comes again, what will it be like? What will I be like? Will I be alive? Will I be dead? Uh, how will it affect me? And I think what has helped me is just trying to focus on my discipleship to Jesus Christ. Trying to be a better disciple than I was before continually trying to improve, partaking of the sacrament really with that commitment that I will try to remember him and follow him. And, and then teaching, you know, my family likewise that, you know, through scripture, through prayer, through attending church, my discipleship can, can be maintained and, and hopefully strengthened. I love that. So you're saying basically the more you focus on Christ, the more you're able to, to have that perspective all as well. Yeah, definitely. So I'd love to hear from you on how you prepare your families to rejoice on Christ's return. Shauna. So when I was in college, I kept a list of scriptures that gave me joy and strength and hope. And I slept on the bottom of a bunk bed, bottom half. And so I'd tape those scriptures above my head. <laughs> and in the morning when I'd wake up, I could see those scriptures and some of the phrases and concepts in there. And it would take me to a different place emotionally so that I felt like, okay, I can do this. And another thing is the prophet told us several conferences ago that we needed to make a list of the blessings of covenant Israel. And I started to do that. And the list got really long, like <laughs> so incredibly long. And I was like, wow, we've got a lot of blessings coming to us. So when you think about anything dark and heavy that's coming or that you're afraid of, Getting out the scriptures and getting those concepts and, and those visual images in your mind is power. And it will carry you through anything. Thank you so much, Sean. Those are great ideas. I love the, the idea of making reminders as, as a daily habit to help you remember these things. What other thoughts do you have on how to prepare your families to rejoice in Christ's return? Nathan. You know, as I can share personal experiences about Christ in my life that might help them to come to appreciate uh, who God is and to be excited um, of, his, of his coming. As I've attempted that, I've been heartened to see them and uh, make comments about how glad they are um, to, to know of Christ and to know that, that he will come again. How have you come to know him in your life on a personal level? I think it, it centers around um, striving to live the gospel. I've found that as I've actually striven to implement these things that, the, that Christ has taught and received those blessings, so that reinforces my confidence in him, in the nature of him. And in turn, I can, with a certain degree of boldness, um, share with my family Christ is real, Christ loves you, and he's, he'll always be with, with you, will never forsake you. You know, I'm so just grateful for the positive outlook that you've all shared as we talk about the millennium and Christ's return, because it can be scary. So 
Just thank you for giving us a great example of how to look forward to those things. Uh, so this has been a great conversation. Thanks for what you've added on our first topic. Christ will reign on the earth during the millennium. My role in building up Zion is to serve our Heavenly Father's children, to look around me and see who, who needs what Heavenly Father has given me. I think my role in building Zion is just to share what I know to be true with those around me and to help them gain that understanding of who they are to God and the role God can play in their life. Zion is something we build now. It's something that we, we work on constantly. So just loving a little bit more or being a little bit more humble or kind. Being a missionary to my, my family, um, to those within uh, the gospel and those without, um, I, I see missionary work being crucial uh, to the Lord. And um, I think that that's going to play a big part in, in uh, what I do. So for our second topic, it is creating Zion where mercy and goodness reign. Now, we've talked about Zion before, and I think as Latter-day Saints, we have one idea of what Zion looks like. In the context of Isaiah, what does he mean with Zion? I think a lot of what Isaiah is focusing on is Jerusalem and the temple community, covenant community around that, because you know that's his primary audience. But some of these passages, I think, can be applied to future covenant communities, that continuing relationship with God. And so that's where we can maybe uh, draw some application as we're trying to create a Zion here. Okay. And James, do you, because in the previous topic, it was all about preparing for the second coming and the millennium. So what is the connection between now creating Zion and the second coming? Yeah, we talked about how when the Messiah comes again, right? When, when Jesus comes with power, he's going to make a better world. Well, that doesn't just happen magically, right? <laughs> like our hearts are going to need to change at some point. Okay. And we've been called to make that world, to start making that world now, right? That's what this calling of making a Zion is. But sometimes we let stuff get in the way, right? God's covenant people don't always have those open hearts and ears. Okay. And, and notice that it's not God forgetting his people and withdrawing. It's they've separated themselves. They're not hearing. And that's a theme you see throughout these chapters is, I called, but none heard. You know, no one answered. And so it does behoove us to find ways to connect with God. Thank you. You know, another uh, aspect of, of these chapters that I think help us in our desire and our efforts to build Zion is the idea of the Sabbath. Yeah, the Sabbath is certainly another key topic that Isaiah brings up here in chapter 58. And it starts in verse 13. He starts calling out the inappropriate ways that they're keeping the Sabbath, that they're focused more on um, doing their own pleasure and, and doing their own thing. And so it is an if-then statement. Verse 13, if you can um, turn away from doing your pleasure on the holy day and call the Sabbath the delight, the holy of the Lord, and you shall honor him, 
not doing thine own ways, not finding thine own pleasure, not speaking thine own words, then, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, etc. And so he highlights a few blessings there that will come. It's an example of how we can put the Lord's will first above ours, rather than just always, okay, I just want to do whatever I want to do on the Sabbath. Um, you know, President Nelson has talked about how it's a sign of really our commitment and our love towards God on what we do uh, on the Sabbath. And Jared, I'm really glad you brought that up. We actually have that quote. Do you mind if we read the whole thing? Uh, President Nelson says, I learned from the scriptures that my conduct and my attitude on the Sabbath constituted a sign between me and my heavenly father. With that understanding, I no longer needed lists of do's and don'ts. When I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear. Jesus in his ministry said, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Mm -hmm. And I think we live in a society and culture where there's a lot of that mammon pressure and you get caught up in that. And I was struck by that phrase in verse uh, 14, where he says, if we, if we honor the Sabbath, if we make it a delight, he will feed us with the heritage of Jacob, our father, right? That that vision of a Zion, um, that, that gospel perspective is something that we can be nourished in every Sabbath by, by giving that sign to the Lord. I love that, uh, the idea of making it a delight. I would love to get some examples of how you have made the Sabbath a delight within your own families. Monica. Um, it's one of those days where you recharge, you spend more time with God, um, you feel His love more, you feel uh, His love for others. And um, when Monday comes, you just feel better. So even though it, when I was younger, it did feel like a restriction as I grew older, I realized um, it just gave me more so I can give it back more, so. That's a great thought. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Monica. Brooke. It's, it's nice that to take a minute and look at the people around you, look at other, God's other children and where you can serve and how you can serve. Um, and that, that makes a big difference. We try and focus a lot more on family, on how we can serve others. Brooke, do you see, um, as we talk about the second topic of creating Zion, how do you feel like your observance of the Sabbath helps you create Zion within your own home? Yeah, we build, um, we build a lot of relationships. Um, we enjoy good quality time together that with busy lives and schedules we don't get during the week. Um, and we, we try to um, bring in and focus a little bit more on the Savior in our conversations. Can I ask, Amber, how do you feel like it has changed the atmosphere in your home as your, your family has tried to really make the Sabbath more of a delight? I feel like it definitely brings the Spirit more and it does bring more, like we have stronger family relationships because of it. Um, I know like, like Monica said, I was also like not appreciative of 
the Sabbath when I was younger. But now that I'm older and I've recognized that I can spend time with my family and strengthen those relationships and also strengthen the, my relationship with God and Jesus Christ, it's become more of a delight for me. Well, thank you all so much for what you've shared. Uh, those are great aspects and great things that you've mentioned about uh, the Sabbath, especially when we talk about creating Zion. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about creating Zion in the home, but, but Zion by definition goes beyond, right? It's, it's not just in the home. Growing up in Ohio, a lot of times on fast Sunday, we'd close the fast by doing linger longers where people would just hang out in the church and we'd eat together and spend time. And that was, those were really valuable times for me, right? Mm. And especially because sometimes things are not always going like you would want in the home. To feel like you have these other strong relationships and you're part of this larger Zion is important. And we'd have that moment to build those Zion relationships that, that bridge beyond the home, right? Where we could strengthen our relationships within that covenant family as, as Israel, as God's people. I love those are great thoughts. Thank you, yeah. Jared. What, yeah, yeah, and when I think of Zion, I can't but think of community. And so if we think of our approach to the Sabbath, is yes, so we're gonna have individual goals and aspirations with our Sabbath observance, but how can we strengthen community, whether that's the family in the home, extended family, neighbors, uh, you know, we attend church. And so just thinking of ways on the Sabbath that we can uh, strengthen our community, I think goes a long way to developing Zion. And then he also talks about, you know, the fast. If we go to chapter 58, that's another form of worship that approaches us to God, that um, connects us to God. And it's interesting that in, in 58, starting in verse 3, we have kind of the people's question to God. Wherefore have we fasted, and thou seest not? We've afflicted our soul, and you take no knowledge. They're basically criticizing God, like, we're doing what we're supposed to. Why aren't you acknowledging this? And I think to underline, right, sometimes we're straying in obvious ways, but sometimes what they're saying here is, look, I'm doing it, right? What do you mean my iniquities separated me? I fast. I go to church. Yeah. I say the same thing in Sunday school every week, right? <laughs> so um, the, every other week. So the, he's not talking about, you know, you're, you're ignoring the fast or you're doing these horrible abominations, but it's the purpose or the motivation behind the fast. Yes, God has promised many blessings if we keep commandments. And then we think, okay, well, if I do this, then God has to give me this. Well, that's not how it works, you know. It can be that self-agenda. Sometimes it's just a routine. You know, we just get in the routine and we're doing the right thing, but there's really no change. There's nothing really happening to us as a so result. So are you saying that there is a, a less effective and a more effective way to fast? And Definitely. even though you're going through emotions, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are participating in a proper yeah. fast if you see the and blessings. Maybe in Isaiah, I'd go as far as to say it's not just less effective and more effective. There's a hollow kind of empty way to fast okay, and a full anchored way. So there's a contrast between two fasts. Okay. Um, in Isaiah 58 verse 5, it says, is it such a fast that I have chosen? He's telling them, you don't feel like you're getting answers to prayers? Well, here's why. 
a day for men to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Well, that sounds kind of like fasting, right? Like <laughs> you're going without food, it's rough. Like, what's the problem? What did I do? Then he says in verse six, is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. I think it's not just prayer that made a difference, it's people. Mm. And as we combine fasting with this, this yearning to help others, relieve burdens, free the oppressed, feed the hungry, that's the fast that God wants from people. And that goes along with how the church ties fast offerings with our fast, because that's the whole focus and purpose of the offerings is to think of those who may, might be in need. And that's the next verse, verse 7, to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. That's kind of interesting. You're even inviting people to your house to uh, feed them and sustain them. And when you see the naked, that the, thou cover him, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. That last phrase is interesting because you, at first you think, well, how does that have to do with, you know, feeding the hungry or, or uh, clothing the naked? But sometimes we hide ourselves from our fellow human beings. We pretend we don't see the problem. We pretend to look the other way as somebody needs help. And that's, I think, what Isaiah is warning against here is that we cannot hide ourselves from our own fl flesh. It feels like, yeah, you, you're transitioning from the box checking to actually living the law of, of the fast. And remember that one of the um, characteristics in the scriptures often for Zion is there's no poor among them. Is it just because everybody's now rich? No, it's because they're caring for each other and having their basic needs met and and loving each other. It's the love that's the key component to uh, Zion, and it's love in our fasting that is the key component to make it more meaningful. I think, too, in verse 7, uh, Jared had mentioned that phrase about bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. And one need we can think about as we build Zion today is that people get very isolated and lonely. And so that's another kind of, of hunger to feed and to be mindful of as we're going through these motions of fasting and other things, right? How can we reach out and connect with people and help them feel connected and, and included? We're building this foundation now um, that can be elevated and those connections are key. When it's not just about going without food and just giving you know, what your family goes without. It really is about looking towards the needs of others and trying to fulfill those. One of the key promises in chapter 58, if we fast with this fullness of heart, right? If we make the Sabbath a delight is this in verse 12. And they, that means the people who do this, uh, they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is sometimes it feels like your life, your family situation, the community around you is falling apart. Wonderful, right? 
because God's blessing mm. is that you can be the beginning of rebuilding it. And there are few higher callings than to be a repairer and a restorer, bringing this order back and preparing a Zion that is, is ready to welcome Christ at his coming. James, I love that perspective on how we can look at, you know, when times can be difficult to focus on the repairer. Thank you so much for adding to our understanding of the fast of the Sabbath. As we have discussed our second topic, creating Zion or mercy and goodness reign. I've learned so much here today. Just I've never been one to understand Isaiah or really anything in the Old Testament and just being able to break down certain verses to understand that they really do apply today and I can get a lot from them. I just have to take more of that time to study them. We got to have very meaningful conversation about the Old Testament and I think it really framed the Old Testament in a way that I've never understood before. Um, and I think it provides a great opportunity for those that are seeking to better understand the Old Testament in the future. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. All right, guys, I'm really excited to talk about a lot of different things uh, within these chapters of Isaiah. But first, I want to talk about a little bit the, the far-reaching influence that Isaiah has, not only just in our specific religious community, but just worldwide. In the New Testament, he's the most quoted uh, Old Testament prophet, the Book of Mormon, same, Dead Sea Scrolls. So for the religious uh, people after him, he is a very influential prophet. But it goes beyond religious, right? Yeah, I mean, I think today, Isaiah is one of the prophets kids will hear in school indirectly through Martin Luther King Jr., right? Because Martin Luther King Jr. was so drawn to Isaiah's message, Isaiah's language is just woven into his speeches. Wow. You'll hear it again and again on the big mall in Washington. Isaiah is what comes out. And so I think uh, the language of Isaiah and even beyond the language, the, the sort of moral message of Isaiah really has gotten into the culture, right? That's part of Isaiah's legacy. You know, I, and I didn't realize that it was so far reaching. Like you talk about Martin Luther King, when you think about, you know, some of his speeches, it is about like, you know, building and lifting other, taking care of each other, kind of like as we've been talking about creating this Zion, you know, this Zion community where we all can participate and the joys of, of life. And bringing in new things for the earth, for the society that are like the millennial conditions that Isaiah often talks about. Yeah, I think uh, Dr. King is probably really inspired by these images of, of radical change from Isaiah to a more just society. So phrases like in Isaiah 64, where there's this prayer, oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, right? An image like that is going to appeal to somebody like Dr. King, who can say, you look at the world now, it's one way, but you, you feel that power when Isaiah speaks, right? And you feel that possibility that the world we know is not the only possible one. And so it's Isaiah's symbolism, his imagery that uh, these later people are able to pick up on and develop and, and it resonates with them. 
but it can also be a stumbling block for us. Yeah, I mean, I, we've just talked about how Isaiah resonates with so many people, yet he's one of the prophets that is most difficult to understand. So why do we have this contrast between resonates with so many people, <laughs> yet difficult to understand? <laughs> and it may be the root thing is the same reason. It's the poetry. He's not just a prophet, he's a poet. He's chosen to present his ideas in a poetic fashion. Hebrew parallelism, where he will repeat uh, similar notions or, or concepts in couplets, sometimes synonymously, where he's basically saying the same thing twice, or sometimes antithetically, or as a contrast. So if I'm a viewer at home, and I'm listening to you, Jared, talk about some of these things, I'm thinking, okay, show me an example of this. Do you mind if we walk through and, and we can see what you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Maybe we could start in chapter 59. And I think this points out that, you know, when we got, come to Isaiah, we can't just skim read or we're just going <laughs> to lose a lot. Okay. We really have to slow down and pay attention because that's the same thing with poetry, right? You don't just uh, read poetry the same way that you would a uh, uh, story. So a can't just read story. the chapter headings and count that as good. <laughs> no, no, we want to slow down. Okay. But what I found the most helpful for my personal scripture study or with my family or in the classroom is trying to slow down and pay attention to these couplets. Okay. Okay, this parallelism. And the purpose of this is not just to, sh well, one is to show, okay, here's the poetry in action, but also then what's the concept he's trying to emphasize. Okay. Because with the repetition, there's usually a, a different nuance or uh, he's got a certain emphasis that he's going towards. Okay. So if we start in verse one here, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So in this case, he's gone A, B, A, B, where the Lord's hand is not shortened is parallel to neither his ear heavy. And then the other two are parallel to each other, that it cannot save, that it cannot hear. And you can hear that repetition quite easily there, that it cannot save, that it cannot hear. And so, you know, there's two couplets going on in that first verse. And one central and, message. Yeah. Love that. I mean, it, <clears throat> it's so complex in just that one verse, but if you stop and pay attention, then suddenly you're like, wow, there's a lot he's saying with that. So verse 2, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So there's that repetition of the principles there. And the overall meaning, again, that's the next stage you want to take it to is he hasn't withdrawn, we have. Why? Because of our iniquities, because of our sins. Between verse 1 and verse 2, right? Verse 1, we had God reaching out, and verse 2 responds to that with the distance. So there's almost that sort of call and response built in verse to verse in Isaiah. Okay. So being just some normal guy, <laughs> can I try verse 3? Yeah. Okay. And you tell me how I do it, because I, I see some things. Okay, so it says, for your hands are defiled. Um, with blood, and then your fingers with iniquity. So hands is the A, fingers is the A, defiled is the B, iniquity is the B. Is that correct? Yep. That's blood with iniquity, yes. Yep. And, then, and then we go to lips, have spoken lies, tongue, have muttered, 
uh, perverseness. So you have lips and lies, tongues, perversiveness. Am I doing that? Am, yeah. am I following yeah, this correctly? Exactly. Okay. So you can see the, the shared image there of lips and tongue parallel each other. What do you do with your lips? You're speaking lies. What are you doing with your tongue? You're muttering perverseness. Notice how there's an increasing, we move from hands to fingers. If it's a movie, right? He's cutting in closer. In, okay. And here's your mouth, and now look at your tongue. Wow. Right? So there's an almost visual effect. Like, this is a great filmmaker, you know? <laughs> yeah. One thing I can't do here, but I've been doing this year with my kids, is we all get a different translation. Okay. So I just got me a pile of Bibles, right? And every kid's looking different because that lets them feel smart. Anytime they can point out, oh, in mine it doesn't say perverseness, it says this. It's a little different, right? Okay. And, and that way they, they feel smart right away because they just told you the difference, but it's already insightful, right? right? Automatically. And then we can really get into the nuance, right? And that's something I think we're going to have to get used to yeah. is feeling comfortable bringing in other versions and learning from those other versions, uh, like you said, like what you do with your family. Yeah. But if you pay attention to the details, some of them will come, and yep. it'll make it more enriching to you as you're going through. And it can kind of take away that fear, that anxiety of jumping into a text like Isaiah. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you feel guilty about not understanding Isaiah as well as you could. Yeah, especially when Jesus commands us to, <laughs> to read the words of Isaiah and so forth. This is one somebody might be struggling with, and I think King James may make it tough. Verse 5, they hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. I'll go ahead and read one more, and then we'll get back. <laughs> okay. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. I think maybe a lot of times people are reading along with these earlier verses going, okay, I get it. I get it. Wait, what? Now we're talking <laughs> so about... So this is when you got to slow down. If I looked at another translation, I happen to know... Um, off the top of my head, that, that they might say snake eggs or adders, okay. adder being a poisonous snake, right? So it's saying, we've got this image of giving birth to iniquity, right? So he's gonna build off that image. You're working hard, taking care of some snake eggs, right? Okay. And so, he that eateth of their eggs dieth. So if I'm gonna have snake eggs, <laughs> I better not let them get too full and then go to make an omelet and get a poisonous snake that bites me, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. So, so if I've tended this snake egg, I'm stuck either way, right? Okay. If I try to eat it, I get poisoned. If I try to break it to get rid of it, well, I've already taken care of it, right? Right. So it's a powerful image, but initially you're wondering, what's a cockatrice? You're getting stuck because there's the the snake egg and the spider image, and if you're trying to keep track of both at once, it's a lot. Okay. Right? So now let's go to the spider. Okay. Right? Made sense of the snake. So they weave the spider's web. Pause. What does that look like if you're weaving with spider silk? If you're looking at a traditional spider web, it's going to look pretty and nice and um, patterned. Okay. Are you going to wear that? No. Why not? Well, it's a spider web. <laughs> a spider web can't protect me. I'm not gonna right? take it. Yeah. You're gonna look naked because it's not very thick. Right. And it's gonna be sticky and gross, right? So that's the image we're, we're getting to. Their okay. webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. So what this is saying is 
Sometimes we, we spin and weave and try to make it seem like everything's okay. But it's for nothing. Okay. And spiders, when we put them next to those poisonous serpents too, it's a little sinister, right? So, so Isaiah's saying, watch out for people who try to sell you a spiderweb shirt. <laughs> that is not your friend, right? I don't know if I'm ever going to think about that again. That image of a spiderweb shirt is going to stick with me <laughs> forever. Beware of spiderweb shirts. And I think Isaiah's poetic intensification, right, where he goes from one image to another piled on, helps us see, because in life sometimes there's some distance, right? And you drift, and then you see the consequences, right? Isaiah's editing your life together. Okay. And this is a jump cut, right? From this moment straight to this moment. And you can see Isaiah, the filmmaker, is helping you see where you're headed really quickly. I love that. I love that idea of him as a filmmaker to really show what he's trying to create in our minds. He could have just said, given a bland warning about wickedness. But no, he's giving it through all this imagery and poetry and so forth. Um, verse 8, I think, is kind of interesting because it shows some of the effects. We already mentioned, you know, wasting and destruction, but also the way of peace they know not. There's no judgment. Again, probably justice would be better there in their goings. Um, they've made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth there and shall not know peace. So twice in that verse it mentions this peace. Well, what's one of the results of, of iniquity? It's the lack of peace, right? That we're, we're not really at peace with ourselves. We're not creating peace in our communities. Uh, and so they don't know that. And instead, they're creating these crooked paths that others that try to follow also get tripped up on and, and feel like, well, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is not fulfilling. Isaiah is always pointing us toward Christ. And I think for some of you, this might be an old old metaphor and image, but you think about a negative from an old photograph where all the colors are reversed, right? Okay. So Isaiah is pointing us through Christ two ways. Sometimes by showing, here's what Christ will come and do. Sometimes by showing that, that negative image, that flip image, here's the absence and injustice in the world that points okay. toward the need for Christ. Right. Mm. So sometimes we say, oh, let me read past the, the judgment. Where's the part where it says, yeah, my sins will be as scarlet, but they'll will be washed white as snow, right? right? But I really think you get to know Jesus through both sides of that, of that poetic strategy Isaiah has. If we jump ahead just real quick to verses 16 and 17, it talks about how the anointed one, Christ, will come it, because there was no one else, right? And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. His righteousness, it sustained him. And so, again, the first couplet, there's nobody else. There's no intercessor. And so Christ is going to come in and bring salvation, and his righteousness is going to sustain them. And we kind of use this as a divine warrior image, you know, that he's going to come with vengeance. Uh, but to bring about this change. So verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation upon his head. So those are parallel to each other of just putting on this armor, defensive initially armor, right? And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, was clad with zeal as a cloak. So this vengeance and zeal that's going to come. But again, with this idea that eventually he would bring this change. And 
And that we can see later on, I think, uh, in Isaiah, some of those millennial changes that he will bring about. Yeah, and I think one thing Isaiah would say to us, right? If, if I went to Isaiah and said, where do I see Christ? Isaiah would say, look there, look there, look there, and see the trouble, and see the injustice, and okay. see the inequity, and that's where you'll see Christ, right? Okay. It's not just that both exist, but that if we, in particular, sharpen our attention onto the, the injustices and the shortcomings and the, the need for salvation, that's where we'll find Christ. Which, wow. which goes along with in the New Testament where Jesus himself says, you know, gives the parable of, well, when saw we thee naked or hungry or so forth? And he says, it's all around you. It's, it's when you've helped the least of these, then you've uh, been following my gospel, you've been helping me. And so I think it's kind of Jesus is building upon some of that same uh, concepts and ideas. Even with religious observances, Sometimes we, we adjust our sight a little bit and miss the mark, right? Oh, I have fasted. I, I've done the real struggle. <laughs> I have done the real struggle, and now it's done, and I am righteous, and forget everybody else, right? We trust in vanity. Yeah. And so, um, so absolutely, I think Isaiah is not only calling out people who have strayed from the Lord overtly, though he does, but also people who have had this more subtle straying from God's purposes and the core of his truth. They're doing the exterior, but not the interior change of motivation they need. What excites you when you go in to study the book of Isaiah and specifically these particular chapters? I come to understand better uh, Christ, his his role as, as Savior and Redeemer. I mean, Isaiah 53 uh, from another episode is, is one of the most straightforward, strong declarations of, of how Christ can intercede and, you know, by his stripes we're healed and so forth. So the atonement comes out very strongly. And so it just helps me uh, strengthen my testimony and understanding of some of these core I would say gospel concepts, but also just the big picture plan of salvation concepts of how God from the very beginning says, I'm going to send someone to be this savior figure for you. And then, you know, we see the rest, how that all plays out. And then, you know, I'm going to create a covenant people that can be instruments to help bless the lives of others. Again, the idea is not that I want to become a covenant person, so it's only me or my family that's saved, but so that I can help build the kingdom and spread that. And so Isaiah helps me uh, with some of these gospel concepts. Is there anything else that you want to point out that really just kind of speaks to you or in general that you feel like our audience would benefit from hearing about these chapters in Isaiah? There's so much variety in life. If life's kind of a sliding scale of where we are, there's a moment in Isaiah for all of it. Some of my most profound spiritual experiences in my life have been kind of unexpected. I remember one where I was freshman year of college. I lived in dorms. I was on the fourth floor, and I just looked out, and there's a tree right outside, and I'm almost eye to eye with this tree, right? And just suddenly had this, this strong feeling of connection to all of God's creation, right? That 
that were just all linked, right? And I didn't pray and ask, right? Before I called, God answered and gave me something. And then I remember on my mission, one day um, just being out with a wind picking up and the scriptures sometimes talk about God in the wind, the wind like God's breath, and just feeling it so strongly, this anchor and this reminder of this other experience, right? Where there's that presence of God there. So before I called, he answered, he gave me this thing. And while I'm here trying to figure out my way as a missionary, right? While I'm yet speaking, I'm getting just this infusion of power. And so definitely in my life, there have been those moments. Sometimes there's the moments where it doesn't work that way, <laughs> right? Where I need to do other things. But, but Isaiah is, is kind of with me in all of them, right? Isaiah will go back and forth. And, and one blessing that I love that he promises, it's kind of tied into the millennial thing. Um, this is in Isaiah 65, verse 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. If we're driving and doing our best, he'll be there. I will answer. I will hear. Even when we, we haven't formally asked him because we're in this proper relationship with God. Have you ever experienced that? That idea of him, you know, answering before you had to make that call? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we talk about how sometimes prayer is to articulate our desire to God and to try to align ourselves with the will of God. But, but there are times when, as I look back, I, I realize, wait, that's a blessing I didn't even ask for, and yet how much I needed that. Yeah. And what's interesting, I, I think it's been sometimes in the, in the times when I thought it was a closed door, and I was like, why, why didn't, I thought this was the path I was supposed to go on. And yet it actually opened other doors that ended up being more important. He knew of things that I should be doing that I didn't even know at the time. And so he answers and, and leads me that way. James, Jared, uh, this has been fun. It's been a joy to sit and talk. I, I really do think that on a personal level, I will study Isaiah with a little less anxiety. <laughs> and I really do think the viewers at home are going to approach Isaiah um, with a lot more optimism um, that it can be understood. And I really just want to thank you both. You know, as we've talked about these two topics, Christ will reign on the earth in the millennium and creating Zion or mercy and goodness reign. And thank you all for joining us at home. We want to remind you and invite you that if you have felt the spirit throughout this episode, that you'll take the courage to act on those promptings. Thanks again for being here. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.